Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today's episode has one of the weirder backstories about how I first heard of them because it was in a puzzle that was part of the MIT mystery hunt. I did not manage to solve this puzzle, nor the the rest of my team. It remained unsolved. (laughs) But it did spark my curiosity about Doña Maria Gertrudis Barcelo, who was a professional gambler and card dealer in New Mexico in the early 19th century. Uh, I worked on this puzzle a few years ago, and I've circled back to Barcelo, who was known as La Tules or Doña Tules, a few times since then. It always seemed like there just was not going to be enough information for a full episode, but it turns out there was a book on her that was published back in 2007, and for some reason, it did not come up in my searches until it was reissued in paperback in 2021. That said, though, this book, which is Doña Tula's Santa Fe's Courtesan and Gambler by Mary J. Strawcook, is not a long book at all. Because even though she did years of research putting this book together, there's just not a lot that's documented. And some of what Cook puts forth in the book, like that Doña Tula's was definitely a courtesan, is grounded a little bit more in rumor than it is an established fact. But once I realized that, yes... With this book and other sources and all of that together, the information is mostly there. (laughs) I decided to go for it. 
So Maria Gertrudis Barcelo was born around 1800, probably in the Bavispe River Valley in Sonora, Mexico. Her father, Juan Ignacio Barcelo, was a rancher, and her mother was Dolores Herrero. Gertrudis had a brother named Jose Trinidad and a sister named Maria de la Luz. Spain had started colonizing the area where they lived in the 17th century, but we don't really know when members of Gertrudis's family started arriving in the Americas. Beyond the fact that Barcelo is a Catalan surname, we just don't have a lot of detail about the family history. For a long time, one of the main sources of written information about Doña Tulis was Josiah Gregg. He was a merchant, a naturalist, and a writer who grew up in Tennessee and Missouri. We will talk a bit more about his account of her later, but in terms of her early life, he claimed that she grew up in Taos, New Mexico, in poverty. But that does not appear to be true. As we just said, she was likely born in Sonora, but beyond that, Gertrudis got at least some education. She signed legal documents with her full name and an embellished signature at a time when most women would have signed their name just with an X. Sometime between 1815 and 1820, the family moved from Sonora to the settlement of Valencia, which was near Tome, New Mexico. Church records in Tome list Gertrudis and her parents with the honorifics Don and Doña. These titles were originally used for the royalty and nobility, but by the 19th century, they were also used for gentry or other people who had acquired some kind of political or financial means. And a note about the nickname Doña Tulis. A lot of accounts say that Tulis came from a Spanish word for reed and was a reference to her physical appearance. But interpretations of how she resembled a reed are all over the place. And Tulis is also described as a common diminutive for the name Gertrudis. There are some sources that say she acquired this nickname as she became more well-known later on in her life and that it was connected to her profession somehow. We don't really know. It's also totally possible that this was her nickname from childhood. We also don't really know why the family moved from the Bavispe River Valley to Valencia, but there are a lot of possible reasons. The traditional homelands of multiple Apache nations are primarily north and east of Sonora, but Apache forces had been raiding neighboring areas for centuries. In terms of Sonora in particular, these raids really peaked in the late 1700s, but they were still ongoing in the early 1800s. Violent conflicts between indigenous peoples and Spanish colonists and between different indigenous nations were pretty common. This was, of course, not unique to Sonora at all, so moving wouldn't necessarily mean that the family would get away from these kind of conflicts, but it may have been a factor in their decision. Also, the Mexican War of Independence had started in 1810, and although a lot of the major battles were south of where the Barcelo family lived, it's possible that they just wanted to be farther away from the violence. Or they may have been trying to anticipate what life was going to be like in an independent Mexico. They might have thought they could find business opportunities if they lived closer to the border with the United States once the war was over and trade opened up between the two countries. The Year Without a Summer took place in 1816. We have an episode on this global climate disruption, which followed the 1815 eruption of Mount Tambora. Depending on exactly when the family decided to move, it is possible that the weather that year and its impact on their ranch 
could have also been part of the decision. Or it might have just been that life in a relatively remote part of Mexico just felt too uncertain, and that whatever they had heard from merchants and traders about life farther to the north just seemed more appealing. Sometime after the family arrived in Valencia, Juan Ignacio Barcelo died. Gertrudis's mother, Dolores, remarried on August 6, 1823, to Don Pedro Pino. This was just a couple of months after Gertrudis's own marriage to 21-year-old Don Manuel Antonio Cisneros. That was on June 20th, 1823. We know a little bit more about his family's history in the Americas than we do about hers. He was descended from a man named Antonio Cisneros, who had been driven out of El Paso during the Pueblo Revolt in 1680. We covered this revolt on the show in 2014. It was a successful uprising by Puebloan peoples, which drove the Spanish out of part of what's now New Mexico for 12 years. At 23, Gertrudis was a little older than was typical for a woman getting married for the first time. She was also pregnant. After getting married, she kept Barcelo as her last name, along with the right to keep her own property and control over her own financial decisions. There are a lot of articles and kind of brief descriptions of her that frame this as a particularly astute move on her part and as evidence that she already had a really savvy business sense when she entered into marriage, it's possible she did have a really savvy business sense when she entered into marriage, but really this was just how it worked in the Spanish colonies and in Mexico after it became independent from Spain. Especially for women of means, Spanish marriage contracts usually included provisions that protected a woman's existing property and her future income and allowed her to end the marriage if it was abusive. We should note, though, that while this afforded European women in Spanish colonies rights that, for example, European women in British colonies were typically denied, it did not mean that Spanish law protected married women across the board. As Europeans colonized North America, indigenous women in many nations lost rights that they had previously held. And none of these rights applied to enslaved women at all since they were seen as property and their marriages were not recognized as legally existing. Gertrudis's pregnancy at the time of her marriage also was not particularly scandalous or unusual for this part of New Mexico in the 1820s. Although a lot of Hispanic people in New Mexico were devoutly Catholic, at this point, a lot of couples just never went through the formal steps of getting married. This might have been related to the costs involved or the fact that while women could keep their names and their property, a lot of times their social lives became more restricted after becoming wives. People were usually living in big extended families with people's own children and their siblings' children and children who had been orphaned or abandoned all being raised together. There just wasn't a ton of focus about whether any of them had been born out of wedlock or not. What was pretty unusual for Doña Tules, though, is that it seems like she kept a lot of the social freedoms that a lot of women were more likely to lose after she got married. She seems to have kept on seeing whoever she wanted to see, whenever she wanted to see them, and conducting her own business however she saw fit. Gertrudis's son, José Pedro, was baptized on October 19, 1823. But he died only about a month later. 
She had another son, Miguel Antonio, who was baptized on January 9th, 1825, but tragically he died when he was about four months old as well. Now, we can assume this was heartbreaking for the family, but we have no personal recollections from any of them. Sometime before the end of 1825, Gertrudis and Manuel moved to a mining camp known as Oro or Oro Springs that later became known as Real de Dolores. The Mexican War of Independence had been over for about four years. New Mexico was now a territory of independent Mexico. This seems to have been when she really got her start gambling. We will get to that after a quick sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice 
privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. In early 19th century New Mexico, card games and the gambling that went along with them were incredibly popular. The gambling part, though, was also illegal. The government did not really do much to try to stop people from gambling, though. They just fined people when they got caught doing it and everyone went on with their lives. Maria Gertrudis Barcelo was fined for gambling for the first time that we know of while she was living in Oro in the mountains south of Santa Fe. That fine was for 43 pesos, and it was levied in 1826 by Juan Virgili Martinez, alcalde of Santa Fe. The role of alcalde was like being both the mayor and the magistrate, managing the administrative functioning of the town as well as administering the law. However, Juan Virgili Martinez was also charged in connection to this fine after a more senior administrator found that he had kept about half of it for himself. It seems that Doña Tules and her husband both enjoyed gambling. He was fined for it while living in Oro as well. In 1826, Doña Tules adopted a daughter. That was Maria del Refugio, who had been either orphaned or abandoned. Over the years, Doña Tules adopted other children as well, including her niece, Rafaela, and possibly her niece's daughter, Raitas. Then there's about a 10-year gap in the record. It's possible that Doña Tules and her husband went back to Sonora or to Taos, New Mexico, where her brother lived. If that's the case, it might explain why Josiah Gregg described her as coming from Taos. But by about 1833, the family had moved to Santa Fe, including Doña Tules's mother and stepfather. If the Barcelo family's move to New Mexico was motivated by the idea that they might find some business opportunities after the Mexican War of Independence was over, that was definitely true when they got to Santa Fe. The war had ended in 1821, and that same year, William Becknell had traveled from Franklin, Missouri to Santa Fe, New Mexico, along one of the routes that became known as the Santa Fe Trail. Spain really had not welcomed travelers and traders who had tried to make their way southwest toward Santa Fe, but Mexico did, and the Santa Fe Trail essentially became a commercial highway connecting Mexico to the United States. As the southern terminus of this trail, Santa Fe became an increasingly important city. The Barcelo family's business ventures included raising mules to sell to traders, and eventually Doña Tulis invested in trade goods as well. And she ran a gambling salon. At first, this was illegal, so her operation was probably a little bit like a speakeasy. Secret games being held in her home or in back rooms with people needing to know a secret knock or a password to get in. But in 1838, the government shifted its policy from fining people who were caught gambling to charging licensing fees for running gambling tables legally. Within a year, Doña Tules had opened a gambling salon, one described as being lavishly decorated with chandeliers and plush carpets, and with mattresses draped in blankets against the walls to serve as couches during the day and pulled out to be used as beds at night. There's also some speculation that she ran a brothel or otherwise engaged in sex work. When she and her husband first got to Santa Fe, they shared a house with Lucius Thruston of Kentucky. 
1835, their neighbor, Anna Maria Rendon, accused her of having an adulterous affair with him. But when Doña Tules confronted Anna, she changed her story, saying that she had only said they were living in the same house. Doña Tules also took another woman named Josefa Tenorio to court for slander in 1836. The details on this slander have not survived to today, but some historians have interpreted the combination of the adultery charge, the slander, and various rumors that Doña Tules had a lot of lovers as meaning that she was running a brothel or otherwise doing sex work. But a lot of the rumors about this came from Anglo visitors and travelers who generally just found Doña Tules to be scandalous. She was gambling, smoking, dealing cards, and running a gambling salon that served alcohol. To Santa Fe locals, none of this was particularly disgraceful, and Doña Tules was a prominent businesswoman. But in the minds of most Anglos, of course she must also be a sex worker or running a brothel because that went hand-in-hand with those sinful things like drinking and gambling. And while she may have been, it likely can't be substantiated at this point. We mentioned Josiah Gregg's account of Doña Tulis earlier, and it's a really good example of these attitudes and how people from the eastern United States talked about New Mexico in the early 19th century. He wrote a book called Greg's Commerce of the Prairies or the Journal of the Santa Fe Traveler, 1831 to 1839. As that name suggests, this details Greg's experiences and observations traveling along the Santa Fe Trail, including observations of Santa Fe itself. These observations are often really negative. Case in point, quote, the administration of the laws in northern Mexico constitutes one of the most painful features of her institutions. He also describes all kinds of incidents as outrages. Volume two of this book uses the word outrage 20 times to describe everything from Americans being beaten and robbed to people using the same musical instruments to accompany dances as they would use to accompany hymns at church. Here is how he describes the culture of gambling in Santa Fe. Quote, The love of gambling also deserves to be noticed as a distinguishing propensity of these people. Indeed, it may well be said, without any undue stretch of imagination, that shoplifting, pickpocketing, and other elegant pastimes of the same kindred are the legitimate offspring, especially among the lower classes, of that passion for gaming, which in Mexico, more than anywhere else, to use Madame Calderon's language, is impregnated with the Constitution in man, woman, and child. He also describes the popularity of one particular game, a game of chance called Monty, which Doña Tules was famous for dealing. This is not the con that's known as three-card Monty. That's basically a shell game where the mark has to try to keep track of one particular card as three of them are rapidly swapped around. This was a different game that used a Spanish-style card deck with 40 cards, numbered ace through seven, with face cards of jack, knight, and king arranged in four suits. The dealer draws a card from the top and the bottom of the deck and places them each face up. The remaining cards in the deck are called the Monty. That's the Spanish word for mountain. And players bet whether a card drawn from the Monty will match the suit of one or both of the face-up cards. Here's how Greg described this. Quote, 
There are other games at cards practiced among these people, depending more upon skill. But that of El Monte, being one exclusively of chance, seems to possess an all-absorbing attraction, difficult to be conceived by the uninitiated spectator. Another man, William Clark Kennerly, also wrote about his experiences in 1846, and he described Doña Tulis as dealing Monte, quote, with a firm hand and a winning smile. Here is Greg's description of Doña Tules herself. Quote, The following will not only serve to show the light in which gambling is held by all classes of society, but to illustrate the purifying effects of wealth upon a character. Some 12 or 15 years ago there lived, or rather roamed, in Taos, a certain female of very loose habits, known as La Tules. Finding it difficult to obtain the means of living in that district, she finally extended her wanderings to the capital. She there became a constant attendant of one of those pandemoniums where the favorite game of Monty was dealt pro bono publico. Fortune, at first, did not seem inclined to smile upon her efforts, and for some years she spent her days in lowliness and misery. At last, her luck turned, as gamblers would say, and on one occasion, she left the bank with a spoil of several hundred dollars. This enabled her to open a bank of her own, and being favored by a continuous run of good fortune, she gradually rose higher and higher in the scale of affluence until she found herself in possession of a very handsome fortune. In 1843, she sent to the United States some $10,000 to be invested in goods. She still continues her favorite amusement, being now considered the most expert Monty dealer in all Santa Fe. She is openly received in the first circles of society. I doubt, in truth, whether there is to be found in the city a lady of more fashionable reputation than this same Tules, now known as Senora Doña Gertrudes Barcelo. The shift of Doña Tules's gambling operation from a secret backroom Monte game to a lavishly decorated sala that served as a hotel and a ballroom and a gambling parlor, that all happened alongside changes and unrest in New Mexico. We will rewind just a touch and walk through that after a quick sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. 
Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true. As we mentioned earlier, Maria Gertrudis Barcelo opened her gambling salon in 1839 within about a year of gambling being legalized in New Mexico. And that shift followed on the heels of some unrest and changes in New Mexico. At that point, it was still part of northern Mexico. The Texas War of Independence had started in 1835, and that had led to Texas becoming independent from Mexico in 1836. That same year, a set of laws went into effect that essentially revised the Mexican Constitution, centralizing the government and establishing a new branch of the government called the Supreme Conservation Power. New taxes went into effect as well, and as happens a lot of the time with new taxes, these were incredibly unpopular. All of this fed into an uprising in northern New Mexico, and that led to the assassination of New Mexico Governor Albino Perez and multiple other government officials. According to notes left by the interim governor, a group of women from the Barcelo family, possibly including Doña Tules, had found out about the threat to the governor's life and disguised themselves in men's clothes to try to persuade him to leave. When that failed, these same women retrieved his body and had it buried. Perez's successor was Governor Manuel Armijo, and he was the one who had spearheaded the legalization of gambling in New Mexico. And in some accounts, Doña Tulis had a hand in this decision. She definitely knew the governor. Various sources describe her as his advisor and his friend and possibly his lover. He did visit her enough times that somebody tried to assassinate him on the way to her house two different times. 
she also definitely became one of Santa Fe's wealthiest and most influential people. She was a successful businesswoman, and she used her income from the gambling salon, gold mining, trading, and other ventures to buy more property, renting a lot of it out. As we said earlier, she adopted children who were orphaned or abandoned, and she made donations to various charities. She also took legal action against people who failed to pay their gambling debts to her. That's something that, of course, was only possible once gambling was legalized, because you can't really take somebody to court (laughs) over a debt for an illegal activity. For example, on August 30th, 1839, she went to the alcalde to demand that James Kirker make good on 400 pesos that she had won from him. Kirker was born in Ireland, and shortly after this, he entered into a contract with the governor of Chihuahua, Mexico, to essentially raise a private army and fight against indigenous nations. In 1841, the Santa Fe census lists Doña Tules with an occupation of gambler, along with her husband, Manuel Antonio Cisneros, who was listed as a farmer, her daughter, Rafaela, and three servants. But shortly after this, her husband disappears from the record. It seems as though she went to the city of Chihuahua for a time in 1842, and according to their family lore, he stayed behind in Santa Fe, running the business and maintaining their household. In 1843, Doña Tulis invested about $10,000 in trade goods from the U.S. That was something that Josiah Gregg had referenced. The following year, she bought a nine-room home on about 160 acres of land, which was adjacent to the land that she already owned. In 1845, the United States annexed the Republic of Texas, setting the stage for the Mexican-American War, which began in April of 1846. We have no documentation of Doña Tules' experiences or thought process in all of this, but she does seem to have sided with the United States against Mexico. She boarded multiple U.S. military officers and other American officials in her home. She is credited with passing along an advance warning of a Mexican and indigenous uprising that was to take place on December 19th of 1846. She also apparently loaned U.S. forces about $1,000 to buy supplies for the troops. It's unclear whether this was ever repaid, and in some accounts, she forgave it. Before the start of the Mexican-American War, Doña Tulis was described as one of the most fashionable women in Santa Fe. Matt Field had passed through the area with a merchant caravan in 1839, and he had described her as New Mexico's most fashionable woman. George Wilkins Kendall wrote an account of an expedition that the Republic of Texas made into New Mexico in 1841. That uh, expedition was made in an effort to claim new territory. In Kendall's description, he actually misidentifies her as French, possibly because of that association between France and high fashion. Her love of fashion also seems to have earned her the favor of cloth merchants in Santa Fe since it raised the demand for silk and other expensive fabrics. But over the course of the Mexican-American War... She seems to have lost a lot of that influence as U.S. troops became more and more present in the town, bringing their own biases and standards for dress and behavior. An influx of Anglo newcomers arrived from the eastern U.S. as the war ended, and many of them found Doña Tules's taste, which had set trends in Santa Fe, 
to be dated or tacky. Susan Shelby McGoffin was the wife of a merchant on the Santa Fe Trail, and she wrote a description of Doña Tulis in 1846, calling her, quote, a stately dame of a certain age, the possessor of a portion of that shrewd sense and fascinating manner necessary to allure the wayward, inexperienced youth to the hall of final ruin. Later in that same uh, diary, she describes Doña Tulis, who would have been in her mid-40s, as an old woman with false hair and false teeth. I mean, when I was a kid, I would have thought 40 was old. (laughs) (laughs) Doña Tulis still had a lot of influence over local politics, though, meaning it was a good idea for American newcomers to get on her good side. In one account, General Stephen Watts Kearney did this by personally escorting her to a ball at a time when her social and fashion influence were starting to wane. The Mexican-American War ended in 1848 with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Mexico ceded most of what's now New Mexico, Utah, Nevada, Arizona, California, Texas, and western Colorado to the United States for $15 million dollars. This treaty gave Mexican citizens one year to either move into territory that Mexico still held or become U.S. citizens. Doña Tulis stayed in Santa Fe, so she became a U.S. citizen in 1849. She continued to do business and take people to court during these years. In 1848, Doña Tulis sued two different men for failing to repay the money she had loaned them. Another court case involving a loan to a man named G.W. Coulter, proprietor of the United States Hotel, stretched on for three years. By the time that case was settled, Barcelo's business seems to have been struggling. As we've already discussed, attitudes toward card playing and gambling were radically different among Anglo authorities than they had been in New Spain and in independent Mexico. So after New Mexico became part of the United States, gambling was seen less as just an ordinary pastime that was part of everyday life and more as a sin that was verging on criminal. In February of 1848, a U.S. military commander in New Mexico levied a tax on gambling houses of $2,000 a year and also banned minors and non-commissioned military personnel from gambling, All that would have had a huge impact on Barcelo's business, and it seems like about a year later, her gambling salon closed down. The last written references to Doña Tules are not particularly flattering. George Brewerton published a piece called Incidents of Travel in New Mexico in April of 1854. He had spent time there in the summer of 1848. And to be clear, Brewerton thought gambling was, quote, debased. And that opinion likely colored all of his writing about Doña Tules. He described her as, quote, scarred and seamed and rendered unwomanly by those painful lines which unbridled passions and midnight watching never fail to stamp upon the countenance of their votary. Harper's also published an illustration of her as part of this piece, and in it, she is wearing a crucifix while smoking a cigarette, and she looks really haggard. Yeah, we're not putting that picture on our social media because I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) That just looks like you went out of your way to (laughs) make it look ugly. By the time Harper's published this article, Doña Tulis had died. She had died on January 17th, 1852, probably around 52, based on when we think she was born. Uh, 
She had written a will two years earlier, so there's some speculation that maybe she was seriously ill or knew that she was dying. This will was written in English, so it's likely that someone translated it for her. This will begins by saying that Maria Gertrudis Barcelo was a resident of Santa Fe and a Roman Catholic. It specifies that she had no debts and that the property being bequeathed was, quote, accumulated by my own labor and exertions. She left a house to her sister Maria, another to her daughter Raitis, and a third to Delfinia Flores, daughter of a former alcalde. She provided her adopted daughters to be supported until they reached the age of 25 or got married. She also had money and livestock, specifically mules, which she divided among her siblings. Her husband is not mentioned in this will at all. Yeah, we don't really know if he was still living at this point, if they were estranged, what exactly. Doña Tulis also had an elaborate funeral, one that George Brewerton described as having, quote, all that pomp and ceremony with which ill-gotten wealth delights to gild its obsequies. Various sources report that the total cost of this funeral was $1,600, $1,000 to the bishop, and $50 for each stop that her funeral procession made. Uh, What would happen is the procession would be moving, it would stop, the priest would pray or perform a small ritual at each of the stops. People who weren't local to the area were generally really critical of this funeral, describing it as much too ostentatious and expensive or implying that the Catholic Church was extorting money from the bereaved. However, elaborate funerals really were not unusual for the Hispanic population of northern New Mexico. There wasn't a standard way for people to simply make offerings or donations to the church, so most of the church's income came from fees associated with baptisms, weddings, and funerals. So it became really common for wealthier people to have elaborate, expensive funerals, both because of social norms and because it was just a way to give money to the church. Yeah, there there probably was some sort of uh, one-upmanship among really wealthy people about uh, having funerals that kind of upstaged others, but also a big part of it was just making sure the church got money. This funeral was officiated by Jean-Baptiste Lamy, who was the first bishop of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Maria Gertrudis Barcelo was the last person known to have been buried at La Perroquita Church, which has since been rebuilt as the Cathedral Basilica of St. Francis of Assisi. Her exact burial place there is not known, though. It's possible that her remains were lost during various building projects that happened in the years after her death. Maria Gertrudis Barcelo has made some appearances in fiction over the years, and her life is fictionalized in the novel The Wind Leaves No Shadow, which was first printed in 1941. In 1949, past podcast subject Nina Otero Warren played Doña Tules at a historical preservation event that raised money for a restoration project at McGoffin Home State Historic Site. Because deed records from the time are incomplete, there are contradictory descriptions about what buildings stand on the former site of her home and gambling studio. These are the kind of things you might hear if you're on like a walking tour of Santa Fe or if you're uh, at an establishment that says it has ties to her. It's likely that the Santa Fe County Courthouse is roughly where her residence was. A lot of sources claim that she owned the property that eventually became the Palace Restaurant. That later became Senor Lucky's at the Palace and then that became Palace Prime. 
But in a 2007 interview with the Santa Fe New Mexican, uh, Barcelo biographer Mary Jean Straw-Cook, whose book was a part of the research for this, said that she didn't think that was that likely, that that was the same location. So I don't know. She's a fun figure. She is a fun figure. I found her really fascinating. And we could talk about some reasons why more in the behind the scenes. I wish we had pictures of all of her apparently very flamboyant clothes. <laughs> uh, I do too. And one of the points that was made, either in the book or in the other uh, other research that was part of this, was we don't know that we have a picture of her, but it's totally possible that we do because how would we know like that that was who that was? Right. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. It's it's uh, it's unknown. There's no known picture of her, is what we can say. So yeah, we'll talk about some some stuff more in the behind the behind the scenes. Do you have a listener mail in the meantime? I do. This is from Catherine. Catherine said, "Hi, I just finished listening to your episode about Lucy Gonzalez Parsons, and I thought I would send you a quick note about this very lovely mural of her in my former neighborhood of Avondale in Chicago." Avondale was the neighborhood where Lucy and Albert lived, and I believe Lucy continued to live there after he died, speaking tours notwithstanding. I've attached a picture of this mural for you below. It's at the corner of Belmont and Kedzie, near the overpass of the Kennedy Expressway. I unfortunately don't know the name of the artist, and I haven't been able to track it down this morning. It's not a particularly pedestrian-friendly intersection compared to some of the other areas of Chicago, but it's a familiar sight to me since I've passed it frequently while taking the Belmont bus. Lucy Gonzalez Parsons also has a section of Kedzie Avenue named after her near this area, which is how I learned her name before I ever learned about her activism. I imagine she would be glad to know that Chicago still has a robust socialist community today. The IWW still has offices and gets involved in community organizing. I'm not originally from Chicago, and before I moved here, I'd only heard of the IWW in history classes in the context of the labor movement in the late 19th, early 20th century. I was quite surprised to arrive and find them still around. I feel like my high school history teachers always implied they disbanded. Thanks for doing an episode on her. Lucy was a complicated person, but the activist scene in Chicago still remembers her favorably. I don't live in Avondale anymore, but I do live in a neighborhood not far away, so maybe it's time to go buy that mural again. Thanks, Catherine. And uh, I also poked around and was like, who who painted this mural? I meant to do a more in-depth search before um, getting into here today, and I did not manage to do... You're going to mural jail. I'm going to go to mural jail. So there is... <laughs> uh, so there is a mural that includes Lucy Parsons that is by Mike Ailwitz. Um, but I was trying to compare and see if I could figure out if they are the same, and I did not, and I... I should have thought of that. I should have made a note for myself to do that rather than just expecting myself to remember it before coming in here to read the email. Uh, So maybe I will have an update about that in some future episode of the podcast. (laughs) Maybe you'll write us a letter from Mural Jail. (laughs) (laughs) We also have heard some, so I tried so hard to frame the the, uh, industrial workers of the world as having been established in the past and most active in the past, but still existing today in the episode on Lucy Parsons. 
uh, because people got upset about that the last time the Wobblies came up on the show. Uh, I still got emails, though, from people that were like, you made it sound like they don't exist anymore. They still exist. I know I know they still exist. I tried to make it sound like they still existed. I'm sorry I did not do a great enough job with that, apparently. So uh, if you would like to send us a note about anything, especially if you know the history of that mural, uh, we're at History Podcast at iHeartRadio.com. We're all over social media at Missed in History, which is where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app, wherever else you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.